From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. I'm going to be a commissioner at this month's General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA representing my presbytery, Holston Presbytery, that covers the region of Northeast Tennessee. Now, you might be thinking, well, the Presbyterian General Assembly, that's got to be about as thrilling as watching a potato rot. Uh, but I want to make a case for its entertainment and educational value. You can watch the proceedings on live stream June 14th through the 21st on our denomination's website. And, and I think it ranks right up there with uh, C-SPAN and House of Cards for political intrigue. Uh, just watch it for an hour and you'll be an expert in Robert's rules of order. But that's not all. Presbyterians are the ones you call upon to solve the world's problems. If you've been listening to Religion for Life, you know uh, that this General Assembly will tackle the Israeli-Palestinian issue. We'll take care of that problem for you. Uh, next, we'll take care of a host of issues. Uh, here is just a sampling of resolutions that are coming before the Presbyterian General Assembly this year. There are overtures to divest from fossil fuel companies, advocate against factory farming, ban the use of drones, lift travel restrictions to Cuba, support efforts to end sexual violence in the military, develop a comprehensive social witness policy on human trafficking, allow pastors and churches to officiate at same-gender marriages, amend the definition of marriage to include same-gender couples, take meaningful action to reduce gun violence, abolish the death penalty, end discriminatory policies in the Boy Scouts, promote food sovereignty, educate against and help prevent voter suppression, make our tax code more just, and develop a church-wide anti-racism policy. And the list goes on. That's less than half the overtures, and all in one week. Got an issue you want worked over by folks with well-trimmed goatees wearing Birkenstocks and who know the difference between previous question, a pending question, and a question of privilege? You know who to call. The frozen chosen Presbyterians. In fact, I plan to use my commissioner's privilege to introduce a resolution of my own. I plan to ask the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA to... Designate the second Sunday in February, that is, the Sunday closest to Charles Darwin's birthday, as Evolution Sunday in order to recognize the influence that the theory of evolution has had in changing the worldview of our natural environment. And secondly, I'm going to ask the General Assembly to endorse the Clergy Letter Project. Uh, this letter was signed by over 13,000 clergy, including me and was endorsed by the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, the Southeast Florida Diocese of the Episcopal Church, uh, the Southwestern Washington Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, but so far not yet by the Presbyterian Church USA. And this letter affirms, quote, that the theory of evolution is a foundational scientific truth, one that has stood up to rigorous scrutiny and upon which much of human knowledge and achievement rests. To reject this truth or to treat it as one theory among others is to deliberately embrace scientific ignorance and transmit such ignorance to our children. We believe that among God's good gifts are human minds capable of critical thought and that the failure to fully employ this gift 
is a rejection of the will of our Creator. To argue that God's loving plan of salvation for humanity precludes the full employment of the God-given faculty of reason is to attempt to limit God, an act of hubris. We urge school board members to preserve the integrity of the science curriculum by affirming the teaching of the theory of evolution as a core component of human knowledge. We ask that science remain science and that religion remain religion, two very different but complementary forms of truth, end quote. That is my quest, to get Presbyterians to come out as friends of Darwin. My guest today on Religion for Life is a friend of Darwin. He is Dr. Blaine Schubert. He's the director of uh, Excellence in Paleontology in the ETSU Museum of Natural History, professor of geosciences at East Tennessee State University. And uh, his research interests include cave paleontology and the evolution and paleobiology of neogene amphibians, among a number <laughs> of things. Welcome, Blaine, to Religion for Life. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. I'm glad you are here. Uh, tell us, uh, let's get started talking about uh, cave paleontology. Uh, how did you uh, get interested in that? I grew up in Missouri, in the Ozarks, which is a really cave-rich region. And in finding these caves and going in them, there are lots of fossils in these caves. And as it turns out, this is where we find a tremendous amount of our fossil record, and these are mostly Ice Age animals. Here in Tennessee, we have over 9,000 caves, actually more caves than any other known state, and so this also is a, a tremendous place to find these kinds of resources. So um, you started spelunking and mm -hmm. checking so, out the fossils, so and what started, do these caves have? What do they have is typically these Ice Age animals, things like giant short-faced bears, giant ground sloths, and these are animals from the Ice Age that went extinct about 10,000 years ago. So it tells us something about a catastrophic event, too, because it preserves these animals that were here. We had this tremendous megafauna here in North America, but then they go extinct about 10,000 years ago, about 70 different species, actually, of large mammals. So you find in the caves the remains of these species? We do. We actually find not only the bones of these animals, sometimes they're mummified, so sometimes they're just dried out. Other times we find the trackways of these animals because these caves are, are sort of like time capsules. While we have more rapid mm -hmm. weathering and erosion going on on the surface, in the caves, weathering and erosion is much slower. And so sometimes we're even walking along and even destroying the trackways of some of these extinct, long extinct animals. And so I'm into both understanding that and helping to preserve it so we can continue to learn about them. Yeah, I would be thinking with all of the caves that we have around, people have have discovered them and walked through them and climbed, crawled through them, that they might have disturbed a lot of what you have is there, if, if there is anything left. Yeah, and so, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times people go into caves, but they stay on the main trails. And so oftentimes some of the most extraordinary discoveries are caves that have been really well visited, but right off of the main trail. And there are always new caves that are discovered. Uh, just a few years ago, we would have said 7,000 in Tennessee, and now we're up into the 9,000s. And so there are a very dedicated uh, group of people out there that cave, they map these caves, and they help protect these resources. So what kind of animals specifically have you found in the caves in this area? So my particular area of research interest is in things like giant short-faced bears, which are these massive animals that were around during the Ice Age, about five and a half feet tall at the shoulder. They actually used these caves, and that's when standing 
on all fours. They actually used these caves hmm. to um, den in. So did giant ground sloths. So did these pig-like animals called peccaries. So did these wolves called dire wolves. They would actually go out and capture some of these animals and bring them back to the caves. We had saber-toothed cats. So just a whole menagerie of different animals that their remains end up in these caves, typically because they fall in or they're drug in by a predator. So these caves, are they related at all then to the fossil site in, in Gray? Yeah, and so there is a really interesting connection here. For one thing, the Gray fossil site, to talk about it, it's about 5 million years old. It's actually between 4.5 and, and 7 million it's the only site in the entire Appalachians that comes anywhere close to that time range. Most fossils are hundreds of millions of years old that are here. That's the limestone itself and the fossils in the limestone, mm -hmm. or the animals that went into the caves and died. And that's typically animals that are around 10,000 to about 50,000 years old. So there's this tremendous time gap between hundreds yeah. of millions and then those animals that go into the caves themselves in the limestone. Now, how these two relate to each other is both in their proximity, that they're both in the same region, but also that the gray fossil site was a sinkhole. It, so the reason it formed is because limestone collapsed. A cave formed underneath it during the Miocene, and it collapsed and then made a big pond. And so these animals were going into this pond environment, this sinkhole, karst, limestone environment in this pond, and many times not making it back out again and sinking to the bottom. Okay. So this program of cave paleontology is, is starting up here at ETSU, or you're in the midst of creating the program? Cave paleontology is something that I have been doing for years. I did my master's on it. I started mm -hmm. in 1994 doing cave paleontology as an undergraduate student. And this program of cave paleontology is something that not that many paleontologists specialize in. But actually, all three of our vertebrate paleontologists that are now here at ETSU, myself, Jim Mead, and Stephen Wallace, we all do cave paleontology. And many of our students that come in work on cave paleontology projects. We've worked on cave paleontology in Australia, in South Africa. I'm now doing projects in Belize. But we do have a number of projects that are going on right here. So it's an ongoing program. Now, did this program begin because of the fossil site discovery at Gray? Everything that we do here uh, is because of the Gray fossil site. Uh -huh. And so the site was discovered in the year 2000. In the year 2001, ETSU started a paleontology program by hiring one paleontologist, Stephen Wallace, with this idea that the Gray fossil site was a springboard in developing paleontology and geosciences here in this region. Subsequently, we have developed an entire department of geosciences, a paleontology master's program, undergraduate program, a geospatial studies through geosciences, the Natural History Museum. We really have an unparalleled paleontology program that has developed all because of the discovery of this fossil site and also geosciences because of the discovery of this fossil site. So something we didn't have in this region at all has developed. And that's kind of exciting, the, the irony of how it all started with uh, the road crew just accidentally it is. running over these bones. And not only that, that they stopped. You know, that they said, uh -huh. hey, somebody finally said, hey, this is perhaps significant. And when uh, some UT folks came up and looked at it originally, they thought it was an Ice Age site because that's what would be expected, is that it would be a site that was more like 10,000 years old. And they brought some material up to the Illinois State Museum where I was working at that time, and I helped them identify it as fossil rhino. And it was at that point that we realized the site was much, much older. This wasn't during the year 2000, because rhinos go extinct in North America about four and a half million years ago. Mm. So I had a little play in the very first aspect of the discovery, but didn't come back to thinking about Gray until 2004 when I was recruited out.
And this fossil site, when you go, they say there are, there are a hundred years left of exploration. Yeah, left that's of that. a, is that right? And that's a that's actually a funny thing uh, that we have said over time. And it was one of those that just got thrown out with no real thought into that. And so, as scientists, we we typically look in the okay, how can we put a real number on this? And we had a geologist come out, and he looked at the total depth of the overall site the rate at which we are digging, and the overall area. And he calculated. He said, okay, if you continue at the rate you're going, it's going to take you about 16,600 years to excavate the site. <laughs> so we have modified that based on some new knowledge. <laughs> wow, 16, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so basically in human time, you'll be there. That's right. It's huge. Yeah. It's over 100 feet deep and over five acres in extent. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Dr. Blaine Schubert, uh, director of the ETSU Museum of Natural History, professor of geosciences at East Tennessee State University. Let's talk a little bit about the Natural History Museum. Um, every time I go there, it looks like something new is going on, it's, and you're the director there. Uh, right. Give us a, an overview of this program. So the Natural History Museum, what we have out there is it was really developed as a visitor center, but we want to teach people about the gray fossil site, but also just an outreach program for science in this region. And we have a traveling exhibit space, so that in the past has been the ways that we have brought things in from the outside to show people what's going on. We're getting ready to do an art contest out there about natural history as well. And there are always kids' programs. There's a summer camp. So Darwin Day is another example of getting the public in there to learn more about natural history in the entire world. So we try and bring the world, the science of the gray fossil site, and people from this region, a better idea about that world of science. And of course, one of the goals, as we talk about, is education of the public. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you and I met, really, at Darwin Day, right. a, a panel talking about some of the resistance that there is to science. And, and you run into that a little bit, even teaching school. You teach courses in evolution, and particularly, that, that's a big one. That is a big one, and particularly in this region, I think. Uh, because most people grow up uh, in the schools, in their K-12, through 12, not really covering evolution as part of science in any great detail. And so there is resistance. And one of the things that I always try and emphasize with the students is even if you're coming into my class not accepting evolution, you need to learn about it because you can't argue against it if you don't understand what the scientists are actually saying. So that helps me get them interested, at least in what I'm saying. So what is some of the resistance? How, how, how does it play out in mm -hmm. your class? There's a lot of resistance out there right now with the teaching of evolution. Um, we have had many entities that, it, that have developed, and this, this is sort of this debate over science and creationism or evolution and creationism, and they mm -hmm. no longer use the term creationism. It's now intelligent design, and it's gone through many different stages, but it's really this aspect of your science is threatening my belief. Your science is threatening my belief, therefore I don't want my children to learn about it. And I think that's the primary foundation of it. Well, you know, even uh, Tennessee and Louisiana are two states uh, where, as I understand it, teaching creationism in the public schools is now legally supported. Right. No, it is legally supported. And, and the way that it is supported in Tennessee is that it basically says that these are controversial topics and that when you're talking about these controversial topics, there's really no limit in what you can discuss on these controversial topics. So it teaches evolution as a controversy. And this is not the way that scientists perceive this. Evolution mm -hmm. is not a controversy. Evolution is a fact. 
and I can talk about why it is a fact over and over again. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit. Why, why okay. is it? If, what, well, tell so, us about evolution so itself. What, when we think about evolution, evolution is basically change over time. Mm -hmm. Do things change over time? And I think where most people have a problem with evolution is do we actually see one organism changing into a completely new kind of organism? And we have to go into the fossil record to really observe this. And once we dive into the fossil record, and once we accept geologic time, that the Earth is very, very old, we can easily see that these organisms change through time, that these organisms change from one to another. And it used to be argued that we don't see transitional forms in the fossil record. And even Darwin himself said, Unfortunately, the fossil record is, is weak. We don't have a lot. Well, it's been a long time since Darwin was alive, and mm -hmm. we have found many, many transitional forms in the fossil record, and I would, I would be delighted to be able to sit down with Darwin and show him some of the transitional forms. And it's in every aspect of paleontology. The human record is extraordinary, the record for human evolution in the fossil record. And again, I could do a whole show just talking about what is the fossil record of humans out there. People say, show me the evidence. Well, mm -hmm. We say, go to the Natural History Museums. The evidence is everywhere. The Smithsonian has a wonderful exhibit right now about human evolution. And it is, of course, it's changed a great deal since uh, Darwin's time. It has. Science in general has changed a lot since the 1860s or 1850s. Right. You know, and when, you, when we talk about Charles Darwin and his world, he was, he was alive during the 1800s, and he was really afraid about coming out with his hypothesis, with his theory about how evolution works. Darwin didn't come up with the idea of evolution. He came up with a mechanism for how evolution works called natural selection. Other people came up with it about the same time because it was something that people were bound to come up with based on observing the natural world, based on observing the fact that there is lots of variation in populations, that when you live in the wild, lots of organisms don't survive, only those survive that have the best variations for that particular environment, and that those that have those particular variations are more likely to pass on their genetic material, which Darwin didn't know about, but onto their offspring, and therefore giving them an advantage. And that's all natural selection really is. It's a concept that pretty much everybody understands and agrees with, but they immediately close down when they hear the, world, the word Charles Darwin. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's almost his name itself it is. that is that has been so smeared, I guess mm -hmm. that it, that uh, has a resistance to that. That's right. Um, there's also a sense in which science or natural selection or evolution is is not um, easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know it's it's not um, what you might even almost say natural. Uh, that that it's it, it isn't intuitive. Uh, we look around. Um, I, on my program, I had philosopher Daniel Dennett, and he talked about how, how did we come up with origins of gods. And he said right. it's just kind of, it, it, humans evolved to when something moves, we give it agency, mm -hmm. and and that's kind of a. a probably a survival technique that uh, it's better safe than sorry. It could be lunch or, you know, for yeah. you, or you could be it's lunch. And right. so we, human beings kind of looked at everything in terms of something is guiding it, something is moving in, and that perhaps is, is a natural, intuitive way of thinking. When science comes along and evolution itself, wait, there's no, no one guiding it. Right. That can be disconcerting. I think that a lot of evolution um, fails in people trying to understand it because it is so difficult because it takes a lot of time to understand geologic time, to mm -hmm. be shown the evidence and realize that this makes sense, that radiometric dating works in this way, that we look detailed aspects of the fossil record and stratigraphy 
you can't just grasp that intuitively without spending the time to looking into it. And so it's ironic that evolution itself is evolutionarily hard to understand hmm. because I think it's much more, it's much easier and intuitive to just have a belief that was passed down to you based on what was these, these more easy agencies to understand. And there's also a sense, I suppose, of, of comfort or place, um, that the idea of, of an agent, God, caring for me or guiding me through um, in any form of that somehow is, is, is a little easier to accept than, than I'm kind of out there alone. I think in many ways it, it comes down to dealing with tragedy and mm. comes down to dealing with death and how can we cope with this? How, how do we cope with these extremes in, in seasons? How do we cope with the death of a loved one? If we develop these, these senses, these agencies uh, to do that, and it's easily explainable, it comforts us. And so I think evolutionists have to go out of their way to find uh, that same level of comfort. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, uh, you, you mentioned that you can talk about your spirituality a little yeah. bit. How do, you, how do you define that? I think it's it's complicated when you talk to any scientist because you run the gamut on on where scientists fall out. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly fall in the in the realm of of being an agnostic uh, or an atheist, depending on how you define those. And um, I'm definitely an atheist, but I'm not a, a hundred percent atheist in that I'm totally open to the possibility that there might be a God. I'm just not convinced that there uh -huh. is. And, and certainly, um, I think it's sort of anti-scientific to say there's absolutely not one because you haven't, it hasn't been demonstrated to mm -hmm. you that there's not one. But I think in this realm of, of community aspect, uh, that is something that religions offer that a lot of scientists and evolutionists lack. And there has become this sort of movement of how do we develop community? How do we develop support for each other without religion? Yeah. Or how might a religion evolve? If you, if you had a wish and right. you looked at a religion or as you see it being practiced, what would, you, what would you hope that might change? You know, I think as we look through time and we look at all of the, or many of the religious stories, there's, there's lots of tremendous messages that we, can, that we can see. There's lots of really horrific, scary messages too. And, mm -hmm. But... What religions try and do often is find these stories and these, these sort of things of antiquity and interpret them so that it can comfort us and, and make us feel better about where we are and, where, and how we can move forward. And I think that as a, a natural scientist, what drives me is the natural world. It's this aspect of discovery and that there's so much to discovery that I can barely rest in trying to understand it all. But I do think that there's often times that we need this community aspect. And, you know, I sometimes attend a Unitarian church, mm -hmm. and I, I do find comfort and acceptance within those groups because it's, it's very open. We talk about religion. We talk about science. And we talk about what's pro and con about, about those different messages. We think, yeah, I think of religion, and I think the— the evolution has come in, in which it, we've moved from polytheism to mm -hmm. monotheism in the West to, to now perhaps atheism or post-theism at any right. rate. And to be able to say and, and put that energy and that passion that we might have had for a being outside of nature yes. to nature itself right. and to the awe and wonder. Do you think that is possible? I think that 
this awe in nature is something that naturalists have, and it's it's something that they try and put out there. If you watch the show The Cosmos, this is this mm-hmm. is what Neil deGrasse Tyson is talking about, and in many ways, I think this show is also countering many of the arguments that you're seeing at places like the Creation Museum. It's it's giving him time to talk about these different aspects, to talk about things like the evolution of the eye, how domestic breeds develop. So giving time and merit to scientific discovery and the natural world and the natural universe and the awe that surrounds all of that. Yeah, and that that and, and of course the the practice of of human beings to help human flourishing and uh, the flourishing of mm-hmm. the natural world as well to put the ethics into practice. Right, right. You know, and ethics is always uh, something that intrigues me as well because ethics and morality is something that evolves through time. The ethics and morality of today are not the same ethics and morality of biblical times. Richard Dawkins refers to this as the moral zeitgeist Uh and and sort of how these perceptions of morality have changed. We can't look to the Bible and read it literally and then say that today any group here in North America is really following the moralities of that group precisely and and be proud of that because they're not. Um, We have come very far in, in our moral development and in our humanitarian development, I think. Blaine Schubert, uh, Dr. Blaine Schubert is my guest. He's the director of the ETSU Museum of Natural History in and the Gray Fossil Site in Gray, Tennessee, and assistant professor in the Department of Geosciences at uh, ETSU. And uh, we're talking about a, a wide variety of things, from cave paleontology <laughs> to evolution <laughs> to spirituality and and. Uh, and to our future, you mentioned Richard Dawkins. Um, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens uh, came out as the new atheists in 2006. And I think they did, um, in my profession, they did us a favor in mm-hmm. the religious field by, by calling us to come clean in terms of what are we talking about when we use the word God, for example. Um, but they've also been, and, and some have criticized them, that they, they might be a little harsh sounding. What, what do you think about the whole issue of of, uh, the new atheists? Well, I think anytime you want sort of the broader public to listen to you, you do have to make a bit of a stink. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what Richard Dawkins does, and he does it very well. But if you carefully read his manuscripts, I think he does a really good job of, of laying it all out there quite honestly as well. And he says, for example, you know, when he looks at himself on a scale of atheism, he says basically the same thing that I would say, is that I'm not 100% sure there's not a God. I'm just not convinced that there is, and mm-hmm. because I'm a scientist. I think that people like uh, Richard Dawkins have definitely gotten a lot more people thinking about this, and like you said, helping people sort of come clean on what their beliefs are. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's made made a great difference um, in terms of uh, educating the public, and and which is of course the your your work with uh, the Natural History Museum. We just have a couple of minutes left. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about uh, more of the projects you have going there. Well, one of the things that we have coming up at the Natural History Museum is our excavation season. So mm-hmm. that starts in the middle of April and that goes through October. So that is one of the extraordinary aspects of this museum is that we are directly on a fossil site. And you can come out and see the fossils coming out of the ground. If fossils are not something that you have been excited about in the past, or maybe you've wondered if they're real, come on out to the fossil <laughs> site because we're pulling them right out. Um, we have this kids program throughout the summer as well that is a paleo camp. And so that's something, if you have a, a child who's very interested in natural history, they get all sorts of experience for one whole week of that summer. 
All right. Blaine Schubert, my guest on Religion for Life. Check out the ETSU Museum of Natural History and Fossil Site in Gray, Tennessee. He's also a professor of uh, geosciences at ETSU. Thank you for your work and for being with me today. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. If you can find more information about the program at religionforlife.com. Also find links to podcasts at that website. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well. 